Hello, wine nerds. Nick, we have been over this. It's for normal people, too. Uh, yes, that is right. Welcome to the Wine 201 podcast, where we help you get to know just a little bit more about wine. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Bridget, a wine lover that doesn't need any of the nerdy facts. And I'm Nick, a wine nerd that wants more people to drink wine that they really enjoy. So join us as we learn just a little bit more about wine. This is Season 1, Episode 2, and we're talking Cabernet Sauvignon. start this season this i mean this is episode two but for all intents and purposes it's the Just first time. you know we discussed <laughs> should we do episode zero for the intro no. or episode one and we decided uh this is so now the first real episode talking about an actual grape bridal um so we thought we should start with just a brief explanation of what exactly a Bordeaux grape varietal is and why we chose to do that theme. Great idea, Nick. I think it's always helpful for you to understand why we chose to start where we started so you can kind of see the progression as we go on. So Bordeaux France is the <laughs> OG producer of dry, full-bodied red wines. So if you like those wines, Bridget, um, you need to give a little props to Bordeaux France. Um, grapes like Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, and many more originally came from there. Or even if they didn't originally, originally came from there, they were discovered to be really good grapes to make good wines because of Bordeaux, France's wines were so good. Um, so they've spread all over the world from Bordeaux just because of the quality of the wines from Bordeaux, the amount of influence the producers and their techniques have had on people all over, all over the world. And so we thought Bordeaux would be a good place to start exploring the world of wine. Plus, thank God it's turning into cooler weather finally as we're recording this. Um, yeah, you it, might be listening in the middle of summer, but you know. But, you know, that's fine. Red wine's good all the time. <laughs> um, I'm even wearing a sweatshirt. It is not 95 degrees out. Thank and God. Thank God. As soon as it starts to get a little bit cooler, my mind goes to red wine even more than normal. <laughs> the only time I even switch away from red wine is when it's 95 degrees. So it seemed like a great idea to talk about the world's most popular red wines for our very First season of Wine 201. We picked the Bordeaux red varietals, and there's six, you know, five, and then the bonus one, Carmenere. And we did, when we talked about which one we should start with, I said, boom, Cabernet Sauvignon, because Cab is king. And because Bridget would be so angry otherwise. So let's get going with Amber Mina from Staglin Family Vineyard and talk about Cabernet Sauvignon. If I was to come up with the perfect person to talk about not only Cabernet Sauvignon, but Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon, and explain it in a way that makes sense to a lot of people, I think I would come up with Amber Mina, who luckily is our guest today to <laughs> talk about Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, Amber is the global trade sales director at Staglin Family Vineyard, which is one of the best places in Napa Valley, California, for Cabernet Sauvignon. Ooh, are we going to get a peek here? Look oh at that. Oh, my gosh. We oh, can see beautiful. video as we're recording. We're looking at the vineyards, and this is... Beautiful. Uh, yeah. It's been too long. On a plane. <laughs> it's been too long. So welcome, Amber. Thanks for Hi. joining us. Hi. Thank you. Welcome, welcome. So happy to be here. And 
Uh, I feel like I'm almost in Wisconsin because, as you know, I'm originally from Wisconsin. So uh, I, I can tell you that I have not had a cheese curd in a long time. So I'm, <laughs> oh, gosh. We I know. Are you a hot or a cold cheese curd? I'm person? cold, personally. So I'm hot. I'm a hot. Are you? Curder. See, now, I, I only like them hot or warm if you get them in. The, so Saturday mornings, I used to go to Zitto in the morning when they would actually pull the curds off and they were still warm. Oh, that's okay. how I want them warm. I don't want them deep fried. <laughs> warm. I just want them warm like that. Yeah. I'm like, you know, give them to me from Culver's deep fried. So right, right, right. A, butter, oh, a butter burger, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, how did you get from Wisconsin to being the global sales, <laughs> global trade sales director for one of the top wineries in the world? Tell us about yourself. How do you, how'd you sure. get into wine and how'd you end up with this pretty awesome job? Yes. Well, I mean, Wisconsin's still to my roots all day long, but I've been living in Napa now eight years. So I started off uh, working at a tiny little supper club in Medina, Wisconsin. Uh, my best friend's parents owned it. It was called Perk Supper Club. And so they were paying me at six years old washing dishes and I got paid in French fries. Like, nice. like every perfect Wisconsin kid should. Um, and then uh, throughout the years, uh, I actually started muddling old fashions when old fashions weren't cool. Now they're so cool, right? I muddled old fashions with, uh, a, remember those shavers, right? Yeah. Uh, like the shaving brushes, like the horse hair. That's what we used. And I'd muddle all my old fashions at 16, which was totally, you assume, illegal and probably, I mean, definitely is illegal now. Um, but it was the best. Um, and Angostura bitters, you know, and, and the sugar cubes and all the things anyway. So, uh, and then at 18, I got a job at a local country club there and that's where I really started to love wine. I never really loved beer. I always drink, you know, like peach schnapps and all these things illegally <laughs> when I was young. And then Sounds I started, like yes, exactly. The fuzzy navel. Right. <laughs> um, so I, I really loved wine. And I would started working in, obviously at a the local country club, there were, you know, wealthier people at that point who always drank great wine. And back then was when wine out of a gun and out of the tap was, oh, no. was the big thing. Yes. And okay. so you would get these 18 liter boxes of wine and like Chablis, you know, all these crazy, like that Chablis from Chablis, by the way, um, <laughs> like Chablis and Grenache Blanc that was out of these big jugs or these big bladders. And we'd pour it anyway. There were people that came in and also were, you know, drinking great wine. And so once in a while I would, you know, like, oh my God, I can't believe that bottle is a hundred dollars and a hundred dollars, 20. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm almost 30 years ago is a lot of money for a bottle of wine back then. Yeah. And so I would, I was like, I got to try that. It's a hundred bucks. I'd pour myself <laughs> a little bit at like 19 years old and drink it. And then the F&B manager left. And so the GM came to me and said, Hey, can you just go down on Mondays and count inventory? I'm like, yeah, sure. So then I'd meet with the wine distributors and the liquor, it was actually liquor distributors back then. And uh, all men, of course. And I said, you know what? Hey, we need this, this and this. And then he would show me new products and I'd be like, oh, great. Well, then I started kind of sipping on wine while I was 20 years old. They didn't know that though. Um, I know. So I was like, fine. And I loved wine and really started to learn a lot. And at 21, um, I actually went to the company that sold me the most wine and I had dealt with this liquor guy his name was Liquor Dick, I know, which is the <laughs> most inappropriate thing to say right now. I'm sorry. Great. Um, but he was a, he's a, a liquor salesperson and he sold me most of the wine. And I, I went to that company and I went to his boss and I said, hey, you know what? This guy is great. I said, but he knows nothing about wine. And, you know, we're the premier country club in our area. And I really want to know more about wine. 
And so I said, I think you need to hire me. And they were like, what? And I had, I had right. never gone, I didn't go to college. So, I mean, I just was in the industry and I, for six months, every week I emailed this guy, his name was Phil. He's still one of my mentors today. And uh, he, I said, finally, can you just give me a chance? I walked in and I said, uh, he actually interviewed me. I walked in and I said, I'll even sign off. If I don't do great things in six months, I'll walk away and you don't have to pay me an unemployment. Like I'll just do it. And they still said no. And I, I said, I'm not done yet. So I pulled out a bottle of Bertoli extra virgin olive oil and I set it on the table and I put out some sheets of paper and these little tasting cups. And I said, so I'm going to, uh, this is Bertoli olive oil. I went through the history from 1890, blah, 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 blah. And told them all the features and benefits of this olive oil. And I, at the end, I was like, I had them try it and they tried it. And this is when olive oil just came onto the market as being like delicious and heart healthy and Mediterranean diet and all this stuff. And so at the end, I was like, so do you like that? Do you like it? Yes. I'm like, it's, it's a good value and a good price point, right? It's heart healthy. It's going to be great for your health. Yes. They kept saying yes, right? So the assumptive close, right? And right at the end, I said, so you'll take five cases each, won't you? And they were just like, looked at me with... <laughs> Yes, so. And we they they said to wait outside for five minutes, and they came in and they said they were going to take a chance on me. And I left. I left. Um, I actually left there as the portfolio manager um, of a global portfolio many years later, and had hired many many people. I was one of the very first women in Wisconsin at that point. Um, and one day I got a phone call from the Napa Valley Vintners saying. Uh, hey, we're the trade organization that takes care of the Napa Valley. We, uh, the AVA, all of the wine education for the Valley itself, all the government, everything about the Napa Valley. And we'd love for you to come. We've heard about you from numerous uh, of your clients, right, that we represent in Wisconsin. And we'd love to have you come and be the educator for the Napa Valley for North America. And I was like, um, is this candid camera? Like what? what? <laughs> and, and funny enough, I was in Napa Valley at John Bueller's house riding horses. And I said, I'm here. If you don't mind me coming down in boots and cowboy boots and jeans. <laughs> and I stopped down there and they hired me. And three and a half weeks later, I had packed up my house, sold, my, tried to sell my house, couldn't yet packed up my house and moved across country. And here I am. And fast forward, I was there for four, four years and then uh, moved over to the Staglins. Shannon Staglin was pregnant at the time. And Sherry and Shannon are really are the two that run the winery where women owned and women run. And long story short, uh, they were looking for somebody to take on uh, national sales. So I said, let's do this. And I have, have done that. And I then moved into the international sales as well. And here we are. I travel the world and it's great. It's great. I love your story. There love we go. Got a female power right there. I'm here for yeah. it. <laughs> Congrats. That sounds great. Thank you. So Staglin, you know, one note, you, you hit on it. It's female owned, female operated, which is one of the really cool. There's a lot of really cool things about Staglin. Mm, yeah. But what about Staglin really attracted you to wanting to work there? You had a really great gig with Napa Valley Vintners. You got a not represent just one winery, but a lot of world-class wineries. So what was it that made you want to take that leap to go and work with, with Staglin? Uh, that's a great question. And one of the things we already did, did just touch on was women owned, women run. Sherry Staglin, uh, you know, started the winery in 85. And one of the things that we did at Napa Valley Vintners is we brought trade in uh, from around sommeliers, wine buyers, uh, retailers from all around the world. And we would go to different wineries and have events and Staglin was one of the very few wineries that if I worked with them and I knew that I was going to have the best experience, I'd never have to worry if like 
on timing. I'd never have to worry about anything. They were just on the ball always. And I thought to myself, you know, um, I'd heard through the grapevine that they were looking for somebody. And I love to travel. I always have. And I've extensively traveled around the world, even up before when I was in Wisconsin, I did that looking at wineries and going to wineries all around the world. And so this was a very heavy travel, traveling position. And so that was very interesting to me. And uh, working alongside Sherry and Shannon, which I've always admired very much, I thought that would be great. And then if you just think about in general, like Staglin family, and like when you think about the wines there, there's some of the most classic credited, um, accoladed wines in the world. Uh, we're organically farmed, solar run. There's all these amazing things that, that we have around that. So it was a really easy decision for me to want to do that. So I went to them and uh, and here we are. Here we are. So you touched on a couple things uh, solar, organic. Has it always been that way? And can you kind of give us a history of Staglin and and how did it start and what does it look like today and kind of what, sure. what big changes have happened? Absolutely. So um, Sherry Staglin purchased the property in 1985. We've had grapes on the property since 1864. So a very historic property uh, in the Napa Valley. And if you think about the Napa Valley as a whole, you know, 1864, when you think about that, that's pretty old for Napa. We hear mostly Napa Valley being in the spotlight in the 1950s and 60s with Robert Mondavi and Bouillou Vineyards and things like that. So by the turn of the century in 1900, there were 150 wineries in the Napa Valley. So what made that stop? I mean, amongst most other things, but Prohibition was one of the largest things. So after Prohibition was over in 1933, there were only 12 wineries left. So from 150 to 12. And um, anyway... It took a long time for that to regain strength. Makes me emotional too. Yeah, <laughs> just want to cry. Everyone's tearing up over here. Good old exactly. And so at that point, they had uplifted most vineyards, and including our vineyard, um, we had uh, prunes and apricots and walnuts planted here at that point, like most vineyards. So anyway, after the turn of the century, this happened. Uh, the Stectors uh, owned it at that that point, and then sold it to, off to somebody else. And then when Sherry purchased it in 85, uh, she, from day one, hired David Abreu. And David Abreu is a very well-known vineyard manager and farmer. This was previous to him making wine and previous to him, actually, we were one of his first clients. So our, our farm has been, and estate has been farmed organically since day one in 85. Uh, in 2002, we became solar run. So uh, we have uh, a solar array. I don't know if you saw that actually when I showed you the vineyard. Yeah, so the definitely. solar array came in in 02. And so we're a hundred percent solar run property, which was, there are very few in the Napa Valley, especially in the early 2000s that, uh, that were that and are that. Uh, we have 13 bee boxes in the property that produce not only honey for us, but also uh, pollinate two acres of fruits and vegetables um, from all around the property that we not only the Staglins feed from, but they also give, um, us are, you know, the eight employees, fruits and vegetables off the property. Oh, we also have, cool. It's very nice. Um, yeah. I, just got chi- I actually am never home and I just got chicken eggs yesterday. And I said, I was like, I feel pretty good about it because I never yeah. get because I'm never home. But we, <laughs> we also have 450 olive trees in the property that surround the property with about six different types of olives. And we produce our own estate organic olive oil. Uh, we only sell that at the winery, but it is delicious. And uh, we make about 80 gallons a year. Uh, depending on how Mother Nature, uh, you know, allows us to, I should say. So uh, we definitely are a very self-sustaining, pretty pretty much paradise little spot yeah. on the Rutherford bench. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you said there's eight employees. 
I was just, I'm yeah. going out of order probably here. <laughs> no, no, no. It's all right. Yeah. We have, so we have uh, three in the hospitality. We have th- three um, in my little department. Um, and then we have two winemaking teams and we have somebody who pays the bills. And then we have um, Sherry and Yes. Great. Okay. <laughs> Tight knit little team. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So you are our first guest in this series. We're kicking it off with Cabernet because that's the Bordeaux grape that everybody knows, everybody loves. <laughs> and when I started this, I said, you are the person to do this. I couldn't imagine anybody better. And that's because, as you touched, you worked for Napa, Napa Valley Vintners before, mm-hmm. so you're really used to the education side. Absolutely. And we just wanted to share with everybody listening, many people have a pretty good idea of how wine's made, but we just want everybody to be on the same page of mm-hmm. kind of what the process looks like. Wine is an agricultural product. We sometimes forget that, especially mm-hmm. as we think of seltzers or beer or liquor or whatever, that isn't really an agricultural <laughs> product as much as wine is. Right. But talk us through how grapes grow. So what's the first step to uh, growing grapes? I guess you got to plant them, right? Uh, yes. And yes, that's always the first, <laughs> yes. right? And if you, if you think about grapes, you have to think about a couple different things before you plant. Number one is the rootstock of the grape. So something that happened... Um, you know, uh, throughout history is this little louse uh, called phylloxera, essentially. And so phylloxera is a, uh, a disease that has uh, the rootstock of certain types of grapes and certain vitis vinifera. Uh, this, these, this phylloxera will come in and it'll end up taking the life cycle of the vine to become very different. So it essentially slowly throughout the years will end up taking less fruit or taking the fruit and only letting it grow less and less and less as it grows older. So if you're not normally getting 10 bunches to a, a vine, once it has phylloxera set in, you'll get six, then you'll get two, and then you'll essentially get none. And then it looks like little warts on the, on the leaves itself. So when phylloxera hit, they, they have, uh, Vitis vinifera is the type of grapes that we plant for grapevines, right? It's different than the grapes that you will get in the store that are sweet and delicious and don't have any seeds. These are very tiny, uh, like the size of, I always like to say the size of a red pencil, uh, you know, like they're a red eraser on a pencil, sometimes a little bit bigger than that. And inside are these green seeds that when ripe turn brown and they're cracky and crunchy. And inside those seeds are what um, are tannins and tannins are what make your mouth dry out. So if you have a really dry tannic Cabernet, it's like, oh, oh, where where did all of, you know, where did all of that kind of liquid in my mouth go? So that they're from the skins and the seeds of the grapes. But anyway, I diverge. I need to go back. I digress. (laughs) So the, the rootstock itself is French. So what happened after phylloxera hit it, they realized after, you know, a bunch of study that American rootstock was not susceptible to having phylloxera. So they ended up taking off the bottom rootstock, having it be American, and then grafting on the French the French top, top and then planted. So all around the world, 85% of the world is has American rootstock and French vitis vinifera top. So there's that. Then secondly, it's different types and clones of grapes. So for instance, we make two different Chardonnays. One of them are American clones, one of the Chardonnays, and then the other Chardonnay is French clones. Think about clones like you'd think of going to the grocery store, um, Piggly Wiggly. Do you guys still have Piggly Wiggly? Yeah, we do. Yes, we still yes. do. <laughs> okay. So if you, they don't have many anywhere else, P.S. Um, but Piggly Wiggly you go into and you see a gala apple 
a golden delicious, a honey crisp. They're all apples, right? But they're all different types of apples and they taste different. Same thing with Chardonnay. There's different types of Chardonnay. It tastes different depending on where you grow it and depending on the soil and the climate and all those things. So those are the first really things about that. Though the life cycle of the vine in general is you plant it. After three to four years, you can take a crop off of it and start making wine. It takes that long to happen. Kind of like when you plant a peach tree or an apple tree too. You might get a little bit of a, a little bit of fruit the first couple of years, but it's not really grown yet. Not really the best yet. So the um, three to four years, you get a crop by between 10 and 15 years is when the vines are fully mature. And then after, after 20 years is when that it starts going down, downhill as far as production. So you'll get less and less fruit as it gets older. Kind of like, I mean, kind of like us, as we grow older, we start getting shorter and all the things, right? We just (laughs) go down. (laughs) Exactly. So, um, Anyway, so that starts. So January from like the life cycle of a vine in general in January is the time where I'm actually going to once harvest hits is at the end between August and October. Once you take off the grapes, the grapes essentially go into a rest or the grape vines go into a rest cycle. And in January, once the the between uh, November, December and January is when we get all of our rain. So the Napa Valley itself is a Mediterranean climate zone, which only 2% of the Earth's surface is Mediterranean climate zone. That's hot days, cool nights. We have no humidity here, which being from Wisconsin was one of my favorite things about living in the Napa Valley. I hate humidity. Yes. Um, And then um, what, what you'll see... Uh, during the day is these diurnal swings, right? It's today's going to be 85 tonight will be 50. And that's every single day we have these. So the grapes have all the time in the world to ripen, but then at night, the temperature goes down and you end up retaining acidity and the fruit characteristics in the wine when things cool down. So it essentially tells the grapes that they can rest and they don't have to continue to ripen at that point. So um, the other thing is, is we only get rain between November and March. So when you guys are getting snow, we're getting our rain. Um, and when we don't get one inch of rain, not even one inch between March and November or March and October, I'll say. So as you guys are getting pummeled with rain and thunderstorms, we just don't have that. But if you think about that, when you have no rain, you have a very little uh, opportunity to grow mold and mildew and all these kind of things that can happen. Right. So we don't have any problems with that. And secondly, uh, with, uh, with no rain, we don't have the Wisconsin state bird, which is the mosquito. Oh, God. So we're very lucky in that. So we have very little pest pests that can hurt uh, insects and or pests that can hurt the vines. So in January, um, after it's stored, the vine has stored all this water that it's received. Then it starts like punching out little the little branches and, or little branches, the little um, vines itself and as things keep progressing, we end up clipping the ones that we're going to keep for the year and setting the ones for next year. And then we have leaves punch out. We have the little tiny um, berries that will set. And before berries set, we have the little flowering. It happens five to seven days. And interestingly enough about grapevines, they're hermaphroditic, which means that we don't need bees to pollinate them. They pollinate themselves. They have female and male parts. So they pollinate themselves in those five to seven days. And then uh, then the berries will push out. So if you don't have pollination, like in an apple tree, right? If those, if those, if the bees don't come up and actually like hit the the flowers, you won't pollinate. Well, it's the same thing with us. So if you don't have pollinated flowers, you don't have fruit. So once we have that, we have berries set. The berries grow up until August, mid September. They harvest, they pick, and um, and there we go. That's essentially the life cycle of the vine. 
That's great. Actually, I, I thought that was incredibly well uh, well thought through. It, I'm just glad you didn't do the John Williams, it's all about sex talk. <laughs> yes, I have heard that numerous times. Um, John is a dear friend of mine. I've been, I actually used to sell his wine in Wisconsin back in the day. I've known him for 20 years, which is, yes. And he's still- he did it on a previous podcast with us. <laughs> yes, I can see hey, that he would do that. That is fascinating. People are listening and they understand that. Yes. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, you touched on the weather, uh, you know, a, a bit and how it compares to not being as painful it is, as it is here in the summer uh, with mosquitoes and 95% humidity. Uh, so talk a little bit more about how important the weather is. So we, I, I thought it was great, you know, the grapes get their chance to rest at night and they can take a little bit of a breather. Um, but you hear a lot of talk about where grapes grow on certain sites, um, sides of hills, in the sun, in the shade. Can you talk a little bit through uh, how important that is and, and how you choose where to plant different grapes. Absolutely. So I can, I'll focus in on Staglin for a second. So the Napa Valley itself is two mountain ranges that envelope the valley itself. So it's 30 miles long, up to four and a half miles wide at its widest point. If you had a drone over the Napa Valley, it would look like an hourglass shape. Okay. So the mountain range on the east side is the Vaca. The west side is the Mayacamas. We're on the Mayacamas side. We have 16 AVAs that, that are inside of the, the Napa Valley AVA itself. And um, all the all from the south being Carneros, which is the only AVA that we share with Sonoma. It's the coolest. It's always in its 60s. You could drive eight miles north and it'll be 20 degrees hotter in eight miles. It's crazy. Yeah. So Chardonnay and Pinot Noir are down there. Um, and then as you travel north, it gets hotter, right? So Rutherford, where we are, is in the middle of the valley. And it's known for being a little bit hotter, right? Um, but uh, a couple of things. First, <coughs> excuse me we're on the west side sorry <coughs> excuse me we're struggling with the same thing over here <laughs> yeah, yeah i see you're drinking wine though you're lucky <coughs> I'm sorry, I, my wine. I guess i should switch <laughs> i cannot yet um oh man i know i've interviews today so <laughs> anyway so on the left hand side is that my mountain and if you went over the mountain you'd be in sonoma so we're nestled up uh, on the Benchland area. So 90, about 90% of Napa Valley is planted on the valley floor. About 7% is planted up, up in the mountains itself. And then there's an area called Benchland, which is known for really having some of the best Napa Valley Cabernets. So imagine here's the mountain, here's the valley floor. Slowly it's eroded down these beautiful alluvial fans and it's combined the soil from the valley floor, combining it with the alluvial fans and also this limestone and rock that comes off the mountain. So it slowly builds up in that 90 degree angle and creates this slope or the benchland. So only about 3% of Napa Valley has benchland. So not only do we own 71 acres on that with all this beautiful, interesting soil, we own 55, great, 55 acres have grapes on them. We also have since 2002, a cave system that we dynamited out of the Mayacamas mountain range. So we're, it's pretty amazing that we, uh, a couple of things, well, I'll talk more about that as quality. We talk about quality later, but we have this beautiful piece of property that we're able to, you know, uh, have on the, on the Benchlands area. So that's beautiful for Cabernet Sauvignon. We also have uh, down here on the bottom of the Benchland area, eight acres of clay soil. That clay soil um, came to us essentially through titanic plates with, you know, adjustments and all these things. It's from Lake County. So we grow eight acres of Chardonnay there. We're the only producers of Chardonnay in Rutherford because it's so hot. El Molino has a tiny vineyard. There are other places that 
have Chardonnay in Rutherford, but they buy it from Oak Knoll or from Calistoga or from Carneros. So the reason why we can grow Chardonnay is, remember, we're on the west side. Here's the east side. The sun rises behind the east, right? So remember, I said that we have like fog that rolls up from San Pablo Bay. We have hot days, cool nights. We're also the tallest point, Mount St. John, on the Mayakama side. So the sun rises and it comes. And once it hits us at about 515, 530, it hits the back of that west side, right? And it, we end up getting essentially full shade. A shadow, yeah. So um, that's why we're able to grow Chardonnay there and delicious Chardonnay at that. Mm-hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> certain grapes like Chardonnay Pinot Noir have thinner skins. They like cooler temperatures mm-hmm. so they don't sure. burn. Grapes like Cabernet have thicker grapes. They like warmer temperatures because they don't burn. They're more heat resistant. Um, so that helps a lot with, but they also need more heat. So that helps a lot. <laughs> Absolutely. Does. So we've harvested our grapes. It's October. They're off the vine. Dreamy. And we could have very tannic grape juice that is not Welch's, or we could have wine. <laughs> so how do we get from not good grape juice to wine? Does Lucille Ball stomping on the grapes figure in this at all? Well, OSHA would tell you that's not uh, that's not allowed. Uh, I can promise you that. Um, so, yeah, we, we pick everything, and I'll just kind of tell you what we do. So we handpick everything at night or early, early morning, I should say, when it's the coolest, uh, because all around the vineyards, there are native yeasts. And yeast will will latch on to the grapes and start pre-fermentation, which we actually are native yeast fermented, which means um, most yeasts uh, are man-made and they will put yeast into the tank itself that, or they'll, it's called inoculation. So they use these man-made yeasts to do this. Well, we do native yeast, which is a little bit riskier than most because you can't control it as well, but we try to do things organically and sustainable as possible. So we handpick and all the fruit. The, the yeast is what takes the sugar in the grapes and turns it into alcohol. So that's why you need to yes. do that. So the yeast, yeah, the yeast eats the sugar. I'll get to that in one second. So we, <laughs> we, we pull everything out. Uh, we start handpicking everything. And I mentioned earlier that we have this beautiful cave system that we have. So we hand harvest everything with David Abreu and his team. We have we don't we don't actually hire anybody. We have our same team that we use all year round. We hand harvest everything and we walk it up to the winery itself. So if you think about if you were in you had a peach tree and you end up taking these big vats and you piled, you know, and stacked the peaches on the tree or excuse me, inside of that 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 vat. The ones on the bottom would bruise or like bust open and the sugar would start like the juices start running. So if you think about that, imagine taking an apple and you drop it, right? Right away, it has that bruised part, right? And right away, it starts almost rotting from the inside out, oxidizing. So Mm -hmm. we handpick everything. We walk it up and we process it right in one second. Like it's there. We don't have to wait. We don't let it bruise. We don't let it... um, have to wait um, for the, the yeast to come out and all those things. It's just, we process, it's amazing. So it's these, these tiny details that make the difference. Um, other people will harvest, they'll put them into these big, you know, vats, and then they have to truck them to it, to their winery, which could be 10 minutes away, two hours away. So a lot, a lot of things can happen during that, that two hours. So we, the, the precision of what we're able to do and what, because we have this winery is amazing. So and has it always been done that way? Have you always so walked? 2002 is when we finished the winery. So since 2002, uh, we have had to walk, we walk everything up, handpick, walk it up and go through. Uh, and so um, what was the question in the beginning? How do you get from uh, <laughs> yeah. to wine? 
Thanks. Sorry. So, um, <laughs> yes. So our Chardonnay is a little bit different than most. So we don't allow, we inhibit malolactic fermentation and malolactic fermentation is this. It's what makes, uh, well, it's just, it's just what makes Chardonnay taste buttery and has that oily kind of viscous finish to it. Right. So we inhibit that and we do that with temperature control. So we will take the Chardonnay we will put it into a five or 600 liter barrel. So think about a regular wine barrel. A regular wine barrel is, you know, this big wine barrel. So think about it three times the size. We put the Chardonnay inside of that. The yeast eats the sugar. It gets drunk. It dies and it <laughs> lays to the bottom of the barrel. So it like goes to the bottom of the barrel and it just sits there. That's being called aging the wine surly or on the dead yeast cells. So we do that. Now the barrel I just talked about is the, are these huge barrels. We only have about 40% new oak in the that are that is in the barrel. And how they do that is, is that there's old neutral oak. Um, it's kind of like if you were to use a fabric softener, you know, once you use it twice or whatever, it's gone, right? So you, you don't have any more in it. But you could use that then to like dust like I do at home. And uh because I'm utilizing like recycling. <laughs> That's what I do. Um and it actually adheres, the dust like adheres to it, so it's great. Anyway, so, but the same thing, if oak is used X amount of times, it doesn't actually impart any more of the oak flavors on it. So we have about 40% new oak in that barrel. Um, and so yeast eats the sugar, as I said. So, okay, we inhibit malolactic fermentation with temperature and malolactic fermentation is malic acid. When you bite into a green apple, that really tart acidity that gets turned into lactic acid, which is what makes butter taste buttery. So we don't want that to happen in our wine. So what we do is we barrel ferment it and it sits on those dead yeast cells. And what it does is it brings uh, texture and body to the wine. Think about like skim milk, how skim milk feels in your mouth and how whole milk feels in your mouth. Whole milk is heavy. Skim milk is light and tastes watery. So we want ours to feel like, feel like one or 2% milk in your mouth. Instead of being more of that huge, buttery, oaky, viscous Chardonnay that would taste or feel like whole milk, we want it to be like one or two percent milk. That's a so, great Wisconsin comparison, right there. there you go. <laughs> so uh, then, that's a white wine. Red wine, uh, we put it into stainless steel tanks. We have open top fermenters. Um, the only reason a red wine is red, or ninety nine percent of the time, is because. Every grape, if you were to take it and you were to peel off the skin, inside is white juice. So the red color comes from the tannins and the and the actual skins, the color itself and tannins come from the skins and well, the seeds are also for tannins, but the skin. So what we do is we need we need that wine to like hang out with the skins, right, in order to get that color. So that could be anywhere from seven to 20 days, depending on what it is. So you can either pump over the wine or you can mix the wine and, um, and do all those things to get the color. Then we, we put it into oak barrels and we do that for 22 months around. And then we, then we bottle it, which we're bottling today. Uh, if I had, I wish I could be able to show you right now, but we don't have um, Wi-Fi up there. <laughs> we're, we're, we're bottling today and we'll bottle that. And then the, the juice will sit another year and a half before released. And um, why use oak? Why oak barrels? So oak barrels, uh, number one, give it, I mean, you taste the oak flavors, right? But it also gives it the texture in the body and the mouthfeel, as I mentioned. Um, and uh, oak barrels. So uh, we use, we use larger barrels because it's better oak integration, right? So we, I don't, we don't want to wine that when you taste it, it's like, oh, I just 
bit into some oak chips, right? Mm. We, don't, we don't want that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, oak is just a, a way to give it texture, body, and, and 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 characteristics that are you know obviously pleasing with wine. So some people obviously like if you drink a Pinot Grigio, most of them are stainless steel, don't have any oak in it at all, and it's just light and crisp and fruity and easy to drink, like a patio pounder on the you know on the patio. So that was exactly the way I would describe Pinot yeah. Grigio. <laughs> yes. It's, it's the safest. I always say it's a safe wine. It's like Gatorade. Oh, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> well, that was great. Mm. Thanks for walking us through that. It is now time to talk about Cabernet Sauvignon, which, full disclosure, Bridget's favorite wine. Oh, nice. <laughs> California Cab is my very favorite, Good. which I've learned through a couple we of years. like you. Yes, I, it's my very favorite. I have, I've learned so much over my couple of years working with Nick, and now I know exactly what what kind of wine I like instead of yeah. arbitrarily picking a blend off the shelf. Good. Good. <laughs> yep. And it is California cab. So we, I am thrilled to be talking to you. <laughs> so give us the 10,000 foot view. What does Cabernet Sauvignon generally taste like? There's so many variations, but like, what are the calling cards of Cabernet? Yes. So um, uh, in general, if you, so one of the beautiful things about having an having in Napa, or in Napa Valley or having these different AVAs. So different AVAs are there because they, they provide different ranges of things. So like, for instance, Howl Mountain, everything on Howl Mountain has got to be 1200 feet above uh, elevation in order to be called Howl Mountain. So you could actually live on Howl Mountain and have your winery there, but you could be under 1200 feet and you wouldn't be able to put on your label Howl Mountain. So it's very interesting, but there are certain qualities and characteristics that come out. So a lot of people have heard of the term Rutherford dust, right? Um, coming from Rutherford where we are. So if you think about Cabernet, dark fruit is always normally what people think of. Uh, we also have some savory characteristics in ours. So like olive tapenade, chocolate, mocha, uh, these kind of things. Um, also, people, um, depending on where you're from, we're, like I said, I'm talking about Napa Valley wines, but if you were talking about Bordeaux and having Cabernet from there, you're going to start getting into more of earthy things like uh, leather and uh, tobacco and those kind of flavors, which you can totally get in Napa, but we're definitely more fruit driven normally. And then if you talk about the feeling uh, of what Cabernet is, um, I, I like to always say like, it's like Lady Gaga, right? <laughs> It's round and rich and luscious and curvy, right? But and but yet, it's also one of those things when you know, uh, like round, rich and curvy, but still is strong. Like she's has a strong personality, right? But she's still elegant. So when she opens up her mouth and sings, right? So you have this really interesting base of of a wine that is so powerful. Uh, but yet it's still so uh, for our Cabernet, I, I think, especially it's powerful, but it's super elegant. Um, it's it lingers. It's rich. It's full of fruit. Um, and and I, I mean, the Cabernet is lovely by all means. So we treated ourselves and uh, opened a bottle of Staglin for this. Oh, you did. That is a nice it treat, is. especially at uh, one in the afternoon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, you know, can't drink all day if you don't start early. Don't call what, us. What out vintage do you have? Uh, we have the 16. Yep. Oh, that's one of my favorite vintages. I mean, you know, Palette yes. says you get 10 in the morning, Amber, so yeah. you're behind. Yeah. Um, We're just trying to do our best work here. Yes, you're really good. You said the olive tapenade. That's one of the things I really get out of this. I think uh, the dark black fruit. I love. This is everything I love in a cab. <laughs> the little like cedar shaving notes at the end, yes. I think are really nice. There's some like herbaceous notes that are 
you know, something you'd expect in Cabernet. This is everything I love about yes. Napa Valley. I was going to say the point you made about it, not, I, I prefer Napa Valley as opposed to Bordeaux. Like you said, like, um, I don't need the earthy flavors as much as I prefer the bold fruits. So mm-hmm. things I've been learning as I've been learning about wine along with Nick here, um, I mean, Nick knows about the wine he's been teaching me. <laughs> so little points like that. And of course, your comparison to Lady Gaga, I think now I'm going to carry yes. with me forever and <laughs> and sell your wine for you by telling right. people. I, yeah, well, I mean, um, I always say if, if she was wearing that bacon dress, I feel like she should have been holding a glass of Styling Cabernet. Okay. I think that's going to go on our new uh, ad campaign, Nick. <laughs> I'm going to, uh, let's, let's wax lyrically about Napa a little bit later. But oh. um, so one of the things I wanted to, hit on with the Cabernet is it's Cabernet Sauvignon. And a lot of people just call it Cabernet or Sauvignon. There's other Cabernets. We're going to get to the other Cabernet later. There's Sauvignon Blanc that we're not going to get to. Two of the things I said your wine has are kind of like an herbaceous note and also like a cedar shaving note. One of those things sounds an awful lot like Cabernet Franc. And one of those things sounds an awful lot like Sauvignon Blanc. Why is that? Well, first of all, Cabernet Franc is in the wine. Uh, so we do actually, uh, the Stagland Cabernet, especially that you have, uh, Cabernet Franc, we always use as a blending grape um, on our property. So Cabernet Franc and Petit Verdot. We don't have any Merlot or Melbic in, in the wine at all. Um, we just, we grow off the estate here, uh, those other two, and we always blend. And Cabernet Franc is known for being, giving it a little bit more bright, vivacious kind of green note to it. Um, also, um, we're, we're in an area that, um, you know, Heights is a winery that made Bella Oaks Vineyard, which we're right off Bella Oaks Lane and Bella Oaks Vineyard actually touches our vineyard, which is known for a little bit more of an herbaceous kind of eucalyptus, uh, feature to it, which we do have in this area as well. Um, and we're surrounded by pretty amazing vineyards in general. Um, the Tokalon Vineyard, we have, uh, Scarecrow, the Joseph Phelps Insignia Cabernet Sauvignon-based vineyard and the Rubicon Cabernet Sauvignon-based vineyard. So really fantastic vineyards that surround us. Uh, and so we're definitely not, we're not, we're not in a bad community of people, uh, <laughs> for sure. Uh, so um, I forgot what the question was again. This is, I do this all the time. <laughs> I forgot. Why is it called Cabernet Sauvignon? Yeah. Right. So, yes. So the Cabernet Sauvignon in general, so Sauvignon Blanc and um, and you have Cabernet Franc, essentially, um, that are also Bordeaux types of grapes, but that's how it originated. So uh, definitely kind of like Pinot Noir has many different clones. So that's how the grape originated itself. So it's we're getting back to the sex thing. Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet Franc got together and Cabernet Sauvignon's their much more loved love child. Everyone loves a good love child. It's easier to grow. <laughs> it's more pleasant flavors than Cabernet Franc. Totally. And and it, and it is easier to grow. And it's, uh, you know, more profitable. Let's be honest on that one, which, it, you know, back then didn't know that. And you don't need a lot. It can be dry farmed. Cabernet Franc is a little bit harder to be dry farmed as well. So being in an area that does not get a lot of rain, um, you know, we unfortunately were struggling this year with not having a lot of rain and fires and all these things. So it's very interesting, but that, that this, this is definitely Cabernet country, country. We're at about 58% of Napa Valley is planted to Cabernet Sauvignon. And I think you guys just touched on it being an easier grape to grow. Um, does it, does it require any extra care? Are there particular things about this grape that, um, that you want to tell people about that maybe they don't know? Sure. I mean, it likes, it actually likes to be, it likes to struggle. It likes to be stressed out. 
which is really interesting when you think about it. I know. I mean, that's how I feel. Like my entire (laughs) life is is like that. I travel for a living. So there's nothing you can control at all. So you're constantly in the constant hands of somebody else. Um, But, you know, Cabernet, I don't want to say it's easier to grow. It's just less... It's just less like, like Pinot Noir we talked about has thin skin, so it's easily bruised. It, it just, it seems like your sturdy older brother, like that's a bruiser, right? I mean, it can, <laughs> it's more durable. It, exactly. And so, and it needs less things. It needs less water. It needs less this, that. Um, and it can grow in a lot of different areas. So every AVA grows Cabernet Sauvignon in Napa Valley. Um, Carneros isn't really the best place to grow Cabernet, but you can, right? So uh, in general, it's it's definitely a, a pleaser. And it loves to, loves sunshine, which we have. So I love a good low-maintenance grape. <laughs> Doesn't require a lot. Yes, exactly. <clears throat> so I have two questions that kind of go together, but let's take them one at a time. So... <laughs> Why does everyone love Cabernet Sauvignon? Like if you had to take a guess, you said it's the moneymaker. It's 58% of what's planted in Napa Valley. It didn't get, you know, it wasn't like the winemaking cabal of Bordeaux, France sat down in 1888 and said, you know what? We're just going to plant a bunch of Cabernet Sauvignon and the people are going to like it. Damn it. What, um, what is it about it that just really makes people like Cabernet so much. I mean, maybe Bridget can chime in too. I know. I'm like, well, why do I like it? Yeah, Bridget, why do you like it? <laughs> why do I like it? Well, honestly, uh, I, I discovered quickly as I was learning more about wine that I don't love super tannic wines. Um, so I can't, you know, I'm learning a lot more about the geography and that's part of why I'm, um, in this series is so I can do the kind of regular people questions, right? That as I'm learning about the geography of California and where in the rest of the world, as we'll talk about soon, um, where different grapes are from, what, what the climate, you know, right here, I've learned about Sauvignon Blanc is my favorite white wine. Cabernet Sauvignon is my red. So look what I'm learning. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> excuse me. I know that I know I like the bold flavors. I don't like a what I used to refer to as a watery wine. So just uh, you know, I like a bold wine that will stand up to the food I'm eating. And I've learned so much about how wines pair nicely with different foods. Um, so I just think a Cabernet stands up a little bit more. I like it to have a flavor that I can um, that I can notice uh, and something that doesn't completely dry my mouth out. Now I know obviously certain Cabernets are more tannic than others, but of course, yeah. that I prefer. So those are the couple sure. things that I love about it. Well, and I think in general, you've, you've pinpointed what a lot of people think, but I think the fl- the flavor is the biggest thing, you know, and it, uh, people will say to me sometimes, I remember a good friend of mine said, it just tastes rich. Yeah. It's rich and it coats your mouth and it's not one dimensional, it's three dimensional and it lingers and it, it just feels like it's quality, you know, I mean, it feels that way um, in your mouth and it, and it, obviously it tastes great as well. So that always, that always helps. Um, and, and it is pretty diverse. Like you said, it can be very, very tannic if you were to go up on top of mountains, right, where there's less water and there's less really rich nutrient soil. Um, or you can be on the valley floor and you can get that big kind of, you know, um, big mouthful of fruits and uh, really much easier to drink. So I think I think that really is it. And I will admit too, I mean, it is to a point you have marketing, right? I mean, and consistency. So one of the reasons why people love Cabernet too, is that they buy a bottle of, especially Napa Valley, you buy a bottle of Cabernet from Napa Valley. It's every year is consistent. We have very, very little vintage variety because we have the Mediterranean climate zone, which is the only place in the United States that has Mediterranean climate zone. So we just don't, we don't 
have a lot of mother nature problems up until recently with fires. But um, in, in general, we've just been the most consistent and it's delicious. And, you know, um, I, I think that probably is, is, is the best part. Yeah. We've talked about this a lot as when a, a beginner wine drinker might just be like, I'm going to buy this $12 red blend. Cause I don't know. Right. So we call this kind of like wine 201 where you're I know that I like Cabernet. I know that I like it to be from California. I know a little bit more about my wines. So, you know, I know that if I get a Napa Valley Cabernet, I'm generally going to get something I love, like you just said, because it's consistent. I don't know what to expect, but I'm not quite smart enough. (laughs) I'm just not educated enough yet to know the vintage years as much as you or Nick might. So I'm right there in the middle of the consumer that knows what she wants, but I don't know the vintage years enough, which another reason I love Cab. Yeah, of course. You said something really interesting, I think, Amber, about how it's a three-dimensional wine. Do you think the other Bordeaux varietals lack that a little bit, and that's maybe why Cabernet is so much more popular? Or do you think it's just, you know, they're in a greater quantity with Cabernet? Well, I mean, that's a good question, because I've had Cabernets from other areas that I, well, I've had Cabernets from Napa Valley, too, that aren't as three-dimensional, per se. I mean, I'm very kind of, I guess you could say spoilt because I say hashtag blast. Yeah. I mean, I drink, I drink Staglin every day. I mean, to be honest, so I'm, I have a Staglin palette, which is not a bad palette to have. Right. Um, but I also enjoy like on my personal time, I drink a lot of Gamay, light, easy to drink, all those things. Um, what Bridget would call wimpy. Absolutely. Watery usually. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm a, I'm a crew, a crew Beaujolais kind of gal. Um, and I also live uh, part-time in, in England and we, we get a lot of French wine there. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's interesting to be able to taste that. And I would, I would, I think about Bordeaux, right. And Bordeaux as it ages and, 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 really quality vineyards there, you get three-dimensional wines, but in general, you sometimes don't in, in less expensive uh, Bordeaux, depending on years and all those things. So I think the consistency, consistency part of things um, and, and our climate in general allows us to, to have a longer growing period we don't get rain. So it doesn't, the, you know, if you think about it, if it rained, like in Bordeaux, like it rains often in the, during the season itself, uh, during ripening and all that it waters, I mean, the, the, the vines suck up the water and it, the water goes out into the fruit. So we just don't have water. So it's more intense berries. It's more intense juice. It's more, more, there's more um, juice to skin ratio, right? Cause they're smaller grapes. So that, those are the reasons why we can, we have more, voluptuous, more depth. We have longer hang time most times. So once the grape is ripe, then it just starts building character and continuous kind of um, layers in the wine. That was a really interesting answer. Thank you. Yeah. So that also <laughs> led, normally led to... means bad. So no, there was a really oh, interesting. Like, <laughs> well, was... oh, well, this tastes interesting. <laughs> this <is laughs> no, it was definitely not. <laughs> and you also perfectly led into the second part of this, which is you said you have the Staglin palette. This is a wine you like. And it also is a lot of what I love about Napa Valley. And I think is so unique about Napa Valley. It's a big, bold wine that, you know, Bridget loves, but it's still fresh. It still mm. has acidity. It simultaneously light bodied, but full-bodied, mm-hmm. how does Napa Valley achieve that balance? I've had wines from Napa Valley from the 70s. I know you've had ones from even further back. 
that taste like they were bottled yesterday. Mm-hmm. How did Napa Valley get into the situation where it makes these wines that are are light yet full bodied, fruity yet also uh, have this olive tapenade note as like a defining characteristic? Mm-hmm. What is it that's so special about the valley? Well, a uh, couple things. Number one, uh, okay. So well, number one is uh, we're going to get rid of the actual vineyard and the aspect and mother nature right now, which I'll get back to, which we kind of touched on already, but it's also winemaking techniques. So, you know, we've been lucky to have some pretty prestigious, amazing winemakers that are known for ageability and balance and acidity in the wines. So, you know, it depends on when you pick and all those things. We've had Kathy Corison and Celia Welch, who are our first two winemakers, you know, fantastic women in the industry known for their, uh, their really balanced, lovely Cabernets. Andy Erickson uh, was our winemaker for uh, 10 years after the, after them, who not only makes Har- made Harlan and Screaming Eagle wines that are big and voluptuous and in your face, and maybe not as much known for acidity, but he's also made Myakamas and Favia and wines that are known for their, their ageability and their acidity and their balance. So it's really, in- I mean, he, what a beautiful, diverse winemaker he is, be- that he can do both spectrums. And then you think about our current winemaker, Frederick Johansson. He's been with us now 15 vintages. I actually just chatted with him this morning. I haven't I haven't been home in so long. I haven't been able to see him. And with COVID, we've had a pretty much a lockdown of not having anybody in the in the cave. Anyway, so we chatted and I sat there and think about his wines. And the 16 is one of my favorite vintages that you guys are having because it does have this, this beautiful freshness. And when most people drink Cabernet, they're like, this is beautifully fresh. Like that's not something, a term that you normally would say. So it still has power, but elegance and it's restrained and it has acidity. And you know that that wine's going to last forever, but still it's, it's fantastic enough where you open it now and it tastes awesome. Mm -hmm. So not a lot of, uh, I think wines in general, you're able to do that with, especially in Napa. So, so it's winemaking, right? That's, that's number one. Number two, we talked about the Mediterranean climate zone, and I know I've talked about it before, but those hot days, cool nights. So it has time to ripen, ripen, ripen. And then at night, it gets chilly and cool. Like in the, in the, uh, yesterday, last night, actually, it was 44, which wow. we, yeah, but like today is 86, right? We would, I was like, that sounds great. It's 95. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, but, but if you think about that, the grapes have, have time to chill out at night and they stop working essentially and they, they, they rest. So that's an important part of why we can continue to have that and have that acidity um, stand out in the wine itself. So you, you mentioned the winemaking. I just want to circle back to that. What are some of the winemaking decisions? You talked about the bigger oak barrels. You talked about the neutral oak, but are, are there any other winemaking decisions that affect the wine that give it that freshness and that balance that people should kind of, I don't want to say like, trigger words that's the wrong way of seeing it but you know as you're looking at the label or a a description of it you know if you like let's be honest not everybody's gonna buy a bottle of staglin for everyday drinking um but if you like what we're talking about which is that balance of fruit and and you know olive and cedar are there words or phrases people should look for that reflect the winemaking decisions you all make yeah, so a couple of things. First of all, I talked about how we're organically farmed. So we're, we also primarily organically produce the wine. So when you think about that, we don't fine or filter any of the wines. So when you fine and filter a wine, not that that's bad, it's just it, it does strip things out of the wine, right? And it makes it, it makes other other characteristics of the wine come to the come to head or, you know, essentially like that. We also, um, so organic, I think is important. I think organic fruits and vegetables taste better. So do organic grapes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think 
we do another thing called green harvesting, which we've just done in the vineyard itself. So um, the way I like to, this is a, a great story to think about it. So when I first purchased my house in the, in the Napa Valley, I had a peach tree in the front yard and I was like, Oh my God, I've always wanted a peach tree. I'm so excited. And they're white peaches. And I'm like, Oh my God, like this is like a dream come true. I have this cute greenhouse and the white peach tree. So it had like seven branches, eight branches, and they had all these peaches on it. So imagine if there was, there's six peaches in one bunch, almost looks like a grape bunch, right? But large. And I, so I probably had 400 peaches on the tree. And so my neighbor said to me, he's like, Hey, I'm your neighbor. He goes, you got to take some of those peaches off. And I was like, I'm not taking any off. I have all these beautiful peaches. <laughs> so I, I leave, I come home and one of the branches had broken off because it was so heavy because there were so many oh, peaches. Right. No. And all the peaches were like this big. And I'm like, why, what's happening? Why do I not have enough peaches? Well, duh. So what I had to do is I took off the next year, I learned, I took off at least a half of the peaches, right? So none of them were touching. Well, the the peach tree then, when you take off half, remember it stores all this water and it has all the vitamins and nutrients it has just from when the, when the water came. So it, the mom plant will shove off all of the water and nutrients to her babies, which are the fruit. So if you had 500 or 400 peaches, it's, you're, it's getting less and less vitamins and nutrients, right? Because it has to share with all these other people. When I only had 150 or 200, the peaches got huge because it had more to share with it, right? The same thing happens in a vineyard. If you have 10 bunches. I love how, people, by the way, you just gestured out the window towards the vineyard. It's, yeah, I did. Because I'm looking at the I'm totally <laughs> the vineyard. My baby's out there. In the vineyard. So when you have 10 bunches, you know, that mom, mom, vineyard or vine ends up shoving out nutrients. But if what we do is we have the 10 bunches, we cut off half or up to 60%. So we'll cut off six of the 10 bunches and we'll lay, we'll let them go on the ground. So the mom plant can focus on those four bunches and make them the four best bunches they can. So those are some practices that we use as well. Sounds like what my parents did with my sister and I. Focused all their energy on me to make me the best Ooh, one I could be. Ouch. I was like, where's he going? Poor sister. Oh. Yeah. Hi, Abby. <laughs> um, excuse me. So we touched on you spend half your time or part of your time in England. Another I place I love. What other parts of the world would you say are growing really great um, Cabernet grapes? And and explain a little bit about how you think those are different. You know, we've talked about it a bit of why I love a California cab, quote, mm-hmm. as compared to a Cabernet that's grown somewhere else in the world. Sure. Well, um, England is definitely not known for Cabernet Sauvignon. I can promise no, you that. Nope. Uh, we are we are known for sparkling wine, and it's lovely and delicious. Uh, we are great. definitely not for that. Uh, but obviously, Bordeaux <laughs> is a, Bordeaux is the other. Uh, I would say the largest area and place that we would, would grow Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, and if you look at uh, Australia, uh, also is you know known for not only um, Shiraz but Cabernet Sauvignon as well. Chile is really putting out some really uh, great Cabernet Sauvignons uh, and Argentina actually too at higher elevation because as mentioned, uh, Cabernet likes to be stressed out and doesn't need a ton of water and doesn't mind elevation and all those kind of things. So those are probably the the primary um, con- con- you know countrywide, but also here in America, uh, not only. California, right? So Napa Valley, Sonoma County, Paso Robles is really huge right now. And that Santa Barbara in the Happy Canyon area. I just had a great uh, Crown Point vineyard the other day from there. Um, and then you look at Walla Walla and, and Washington itself. 
uh, really some fantastic Cabernets coming out of that region. And weirdly, I just had a wine from Virginia, uh, a Cabernet Sauvignon that was really, really quite tasty. Yeah. If you've not been to that wine region, it, I've been a couple of times. It's excellent. Really oh. kind of a fun little area. Um, so I would, I would say that those are primarily the ones. Sure. Um, also Mexico um, in their little wine region, just South of uh, San Diego yes. as, are producing some pretty fantastic Cabernets as well. And uh, you, you caught me off guard with Virginia a little bit. <laughs> I'm planning a trip out East. And so I'm like, Oh, okay. Oh, it's, it's really um, lovely. Yeah. Um, what do you think is the, you know, we've, I've, we've definitely had some Washington cabs that I've enjoyed as well. And um, besides we touched earlier on some of the earthier notes from Bordeaux, what are the, the other notable differences in the wines that are grown in other places, the Cabernet um, wines that come from other regions? Well, um, I think we've touched on this a little bit, but we have more intensity and we have definitely more body normally and because other areas get rain throughout, you know, throughout the year. So I think there's that. And I think other areas also, you'll see more earthy characteristics and things like that, that you wouldn't normally see, you know, then a place like Paso, for instance, um, you know, they have hot days, but they also have hot nights. Right. So um, not, I mean, I, I love their wines. I love visiting there. I think it's great. They just have different, they have a different, they have less acidity, I feel like, than we do because we have those hot days, cool nights. So. Okay. Hmm. I'm, I'm stuck on trying the Virginia cab still. Yeah, that was a, what, that was a curveball we didn't expect. Can we, because it's a curveball here, we're throwing one right back at you. Can, what is the biggest difference with like the Virginia cab, would you say, from California cab? I mean, it definitely is much more one-dimensional, um, okay. but it's lovely. I mean, they have some really, they also do some uh, Italian varietals. And I had a, there's a, a place, a couple things, actually, I've had it. There's a place called King Family, and they had a Vignet there that I really enjoyed. And then a Petit a Veritas winery makes a standalone Petit Verdot, which you'd never normally have as a standby or very few places will do it. And they had some good Cabernet Sauvignon as well. And then Tempranillo is also a grape um, and some actually some Italian varietals as well. Uh, uh, there's a place called Barbersville, which is they're probably their most well-known winery. Um, that is pretty delicious. And there's some sparkling wines too. Dave Matthews band has a winery there as well. Oh, dreaming tree. Yeah. No, the other, no dream, dreaming tree Sonoma. It's another one. It's called, um, oh. <laughs> that's the only, that's the only, uh, like, uh, I can't think of what it's called right now. I actually have a shirt, um, from there <laughs> that I just saw the other day when I was packing Bag. Have well, you ever been to Alpine Valley for a Dave concert? I have been to Alpine Valley to see Dave probably 12 times. I was Next. right there with you. Dave, Dave and Pearl Jam were my two big Alpine Valley concerts. Um, Dave and Jimmy Buffett were mine. Oh, yeah. I'm not a, I'm not a Buffett fan, but... Uh, I don't know who my dad is, so... Oh, yeah, yeah. I, Parrot head, like huh? pension, I guess. Yeah. I, heard, <laughs> I heard it's closed. Is that true? It's open. It's, yeah. Oh, it is open. Every year they say it's going to close. Okay, yeah. <laughs> For, for listeners that aren't local, Alpine <laughs> Valley is a legendary concert venue, outside concert venue. It's where Stevie Ray died. Uh, yeah, yeah, So, uh, but anyway, it's it's a good time if you yeah. are looking to follow Dave or it's Buffett. Something. Those are kind of hollowed places for them. I used to work. I, I ate a lot of grilled cheese and smoked a lot of pot down there. That's what pretty honest. much everyone does at Alpine Valley. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> down the muddy hill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, moving on right right back to Cab. Yes. Um, we talked earlier about blending, uh, you know, what other grapes we might blend with Cabernet, and is it not good enough on its own? <laughs> so talk a little bit more about why we're um, why you blend grapes for your Cab and, and what that does to the product. 
I, I would say that most places uh, always blend with with other grape varietals with Cabernet Sauvignon. So Cabernet Sauvignon in general, it, it, we're in Rutherford, so we have to have at least 85% of uh, Cabernet Sauvignon in our bottle. And then you can add in 15% of other varieties and still call it Cabernet Sauvignon. So we like Cabernet Franc Petit Verdot, but the other, other Bordeaux varietals, Merlot and Melbic, are also very um, used here for blending. And uh, each of those grapes brings a different uh, kind of feature in the wine. So Cabernet Sauvignon is lovely, but Cabernet Franc will bring this lightness and this kind of vegetable vegetal character that you spoke of. You know, Melbic is real more fatty and has this more unctuous mid palate uh, that sometimes Cabernet could not have. So that's why people do that. Merlot brings in this more kind of cherry berry um, and, and more of a front mid palate. So really just depends on what you think that your, your wine needs and or wants, or maybe what it's lacking, not lacking, but uh, where you could find something that you'd want to structure differently. And we've, every vintage we've ever made since 85 has had uh, Cabernet Franc Petit Verdot blended in our Cabernet Sauvignon. So that's what we prefer. That's the winning combo. (laughs) I have one last Cabernet Sauvignon question for you. And I think it's an important question to ask. Um, I like to talk about it with anybody about wine, because if we can make people realize the importance of this, I think it's a good thing, climate change, or maybe as I should start calling it climate crisis. Um, you mentioned the fires that Napa has been struggling with, um, really horrific. Um, it's getting hotter in the valley, you know, up valley in Calistoga, it's getting to be absurdly hot. What is climate change doing to Cabernet Sauvignon? Um, I think every three months there's a think piece coming out that says everybody needs to pull up their Cabernet and plant Sangiovese or Tempranillo or something. Could you just talk a little bit about how climate change is affecting the Valley and if Cabernet is going to be fine? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll only speak quickly on this subject because I don't think we know, we know, we don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, we have a lot of speculation and we can only see what we are, we've been able to see around not only in Napa Valley, but everywhere with glaciers melting and millions of other things. Uh, I mean, it, it has, it, it hasn't got, a ton hotter here. We, we are in this valley area, uh, but by all means, it is a crisis in general for everyone. And we're seeing that alongside with the fires, right? 2017, 18, and 2020, 2020 being by far some of the worst fires um, as far as land and vineyards itself, but 2017 and 18, as far as deaths and, and those kind of things. So it's a, it is a crisis. And, uh, you know, I, I, there's, there is a lot of speculation and maybe you should pull and plant other things. We just haven't, we haven't gotten to that point yet where we don't have those problems yet. The problems that we have are the fires, which is part of climate change, right? And what's happening. So, um, and with rainwater, we're just not getting any this, this year we, um, I think we got nine inches. We're used to getting between 39 and 45 inches. So, and a lot of that has to do with the Sierra Nevadas and the snowfall and, you know, all the other things that go, go alongside that. So, uh, we are in an unfortunate drought, um, and that doesn't make anything better um, as far as that. So we do see a significant difference in the valley, especially in the last five years. And, you know, uh, at, at the Napa Valley Vintners, because I, I still, you know, kind of work. Not, I don't want to say Now I work there for free, right? Um, <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, we definitely talk a lot about it, and we we have we we chatter about it to globally as a as a wine region and you know, 
there's not a lot you can do to there's we're just trying to figure out what what steps that we can take at this point so yeah it's a part of a bummer thing but i just i mean you guys are going solar you're doing all the conservation stuff so um i think that's great the demise of Cabernet Sauvignon isn't coming anytime soon. No. If, you love, if you love cab people, get solar panels, save your water, <laughs> save. Don't do it for, you know, your kids. Do it for your wine. Right, that's exactly. right. I Our, guess that's one marketing technique. <laughs> yes. So on to something more fun. We have three quick fire questions sure. for you that we want to get your honest to goodness answer to. And the first one is, what is your favorite food and wine pairing? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know what? You did. Okay, okay. Um, I forgot about this situation. This quick fire. So um, I love, well, I love champagne in general. So I drink a lot of it. And uh, I would say that I would probably have like fresh fruit and champagne uh, as kind of a starter. And I also love uh, my partner, Phil, makes sourdough bread. He's so good at it. He's been doing it for 10 years. And I love um, I love goat cheese and champagne and sourdough bread. There we are kindred spirits. Yeah. <laughs> I would just eat that for dinner. I know yes. I know we call it a starter, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Next up, what yeah. is the most memorable wine you've had? It can be memorable um, for any reason. Sure. Um, uh, I can just I'll give you some random ones. Uh, I was in Amsterdam for my 40th birthday, even though I look 30, obviously. Um, you do. You uh, do. But I, but I did have a 1979 Chapelet um, for my 40th birthday in Amsterdam. And I had I purchased it at Hedonism in the UK, which is a very uh, sought after, or, uh, one of the best places in the world that you can buy old wine, especially in the UK. And I, I purchased it and took it on a train and took it with me throughout France. Uh, and my best friend met me and we went to Amsterdam and my 40th birthday was in this beautiful uh, restaurant um, that is a greenhouse in the middle of London, or excuse me, in the middle of Amsterdam. And uh, they 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 opened the bottle for me. It was lovely. They gave us a bottle of champagne, and they gave me a gift of honey from their from their farm, which I thought was just like the most lovely present. Uh, and that bottle of wine was just beautiful. Uh, so that was great and uh, fun. And I would say this this last Christmas, um, I spent it in the Cotswolds in England with my partner. And uh, I, I brought with me a 1979 BV Georgia Latour vineyard. And why that's why that's lovely and is because uh, Staglin, uh, the original Georgia Latour vineyard was planted here on the property. So um, and that was from that bottle was from our vineyard at Staglin. So it was pretty, pretty neat to be able to have that on, uh, on Christmas uh, this last year. I actually think I remember feeling pretty good about what I opened on Christmas, seeing you open that and being like, never mind. Wah, wah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Last yeah. quick fire question. Staglin makes a limited num- amount of wines. It's not like you guys make 30 yeah. different wines. Nope. But if someone's just going to try one wine from Staglin, what is the wine they need to try? Well, the one that you have in your glass, the Staglin Cabernet, it's our flagship wine. It's what we're known for. It's what we built our reputation on. It is definitely, uh, it's, it's what we're, it's what we are. Right. Um, so that's number one. And that, and if you could get your hands on a bottle of our Stagliano, which is our, the Staglin's original name is Stagliano uh, from Campania, Italy. And we actually have Biondi Sante clone uh, Sangiovese grown on the property that we make a tiny amount of bottles of. And if you can get your hands on that, that's pretty special as well. Well, awesome. Thanks, Amber. Mm -hmm. So let's talk. I said you make a limited number of wines. 
you make the Staglin wines, but you also make a, another tier of wines called Salouse. We do. And yes. can you tell us about Salouse and what the importance of that is and some of the, how that ties into some of the incredibly, really amazingly cool charitable things that mm-hmm. Staglin family does? Sure. So a little bit about the Staglins in general. So they both grew up in the Midwest because Midwest is best, as we know, (laughs) South Dakota and Nebraska. And they met on a blind date 57 years ago at UCLA. Uh, They've been married for 54 years this year. They're amazing. They still work every single day harder than anybody that I've ever met in my life. So fabulous people. Anyway, they got married. She she purchased the winery in 85 and uh, they had their two, they had two children at that time. And their son went to a full ride scholarship to Dartmouth College in 89. He was there about a year and a half and he was uh, unfortunately misdiagnosed. Many times they had tried to commit suicide, but was finally diagnosed with schizophrenia in 89. As a mother, obviously, she was, you know, distraught mother and father. And they tried to find information and research on, on schizophrenia and mental health. But if you can imagine in, 80, in the late 80s, mental health is viewed pretty differently than it is now. Um, you know, people were just get, getting put in institutions and things like that. So there was no way that that was going to happen for them. And if you've met Cherry Staglin, you'll understand that there's no way that 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 was going to happen. So she took it upon herself to start a mental health charity. And in 1989 and 99, we started the Salus label and we had had some newer grapes that we had planted in 95 and didn't want to put them into the old grapes of Staglin family. So we bottled the wine. Uh, They named it Salus because Salus is the Roman goddess of health and well-being. And I feel like I'm going to show you the bottle. I have one right here, actually. Hold on. So Salus is Roman goddess of health and well-being. There she, do you see that? There she is. Yeah, right oh. And so uh, actually Sherry has a brooch of that. And it also means salute, uh, which, you know, to your health, right? So, and we donate 100% of the Salute Chardonnay and Cabernet Sauvignon both to, uh, to brain and mental health research. We started that in 89, 99 is when we started the label. We only make 6,000 cases total of all of our wines combined. That's over a third of our production is Salus. We still give 100% to charity. <clears throat> Excuse me. We now have a global charity called One Mind. And we have since raised $487 million for brain and mental health. Holy um, cow. And have helped millions of people. Yes, half a billion <sighs> dollars. And, uh, you know, Brandon, their son, is lives very successfully with schizophrenia. He is married. He's the president of our charity and uh, is just fantastic. So we're, we're pretty wow. lucky. I have chills. I know. Oh, you that's, that's amazing. I'm, I'm still learning. You know, um, I learned a little bit as I did some research before this, but that's amazing. And if, if anyone takes anything away from this, man, that's amazing. Go yeah, buy some you. Loose. <laughs> yeah. Go buy some loose. Yes. And, this, and yeah. the wines are delicious. And they're, to be quite, quite honest, they're much more affordable than our Staglin wines. Um, and they're different. Those are made to be drank, open them up and drink them right now. The Cabernet will definitely last for many years, but our Staglin Chardonnay and Cabernet Sauvignon are known and meant to age. And that's one of the reasons of also the price difference. So when we were chatting earlier, um, offline, did I hear something about a music festival? Yes. And so uh, that, that's a great part that I forgot that I mentioned with the charity itself. Every year we have a fundraiser. We have that in usually the second second weekend in September. This is our 27th annual coming up this year. We have One Republic playing in the vineyard, wow. which is really exciting. And I are both <laughs> Excuse me. Yes. Um, and so it's our main fundraiser. We start off at noon with a, a seminar, a seminar, excuse me, about mental health, depending on what we're featuring that year. Um, then we have a cult tasting from one until three, three o'clock, where we taste 
fantastic wines from our local neighbors and friends, uh, Scarecrow and Inglenook and Screaming Eagle and Realm and all the big the big names. And then we have the the concert in the vineyard from four until five thirty, and then we have a, a three to five course. Uh, one to three Michelin star dinner outside at the Staglin home, which yes, that is where the parent trap was filmed at Staglin oh, family. So we have it all. Wow. I, uh, that's fantastic. I hope it sells out every year. It is. It's already sold out for the year. Oh, shoot. So Gosh, we're going to have to go next year. <laughs> it could be a birthday present, Nick. Yes, there are there so many cool things about Staglin. Um, the labels too. So mm-hmm. you have the these pieces of art on the label. Can you yes. tell us a little bit about those? Sure. So the piece of art is called Winged Woman Walking. <coughs> Excuse me. So long story short, it is of a woman who is walking. This can get a little interesting, uh, but it's, we'll show you how important women are uh, in our in our lives here. So it's a woman walking and she ends up getting her head chopped off from the back and she bends down, she picks it up and she puts it over her head and she continues to walk forward. So it's a very strong uh, piece uh, about a woman. And Sherry and Garen saw this piece. Sherry loved it. So Garen ended up getting a um, modern artist in San Francisco to, to redo this. And that is what we have on the label. And we've never changed the label in 37 or 36 years. So it's been the same oh. label. Gosh. There's so many cool things about Staglin. That's what people just, should be taking away. I agree. So we have uh, Staglin Cabernet and Chardonnay at the store. If you're local and want to buy it, you can buy it um, online, obviously. But if you want the really cool stuff, and I'm getting jealous now, <laughs> I'm browsing your website. Nick's shopping over here. <laughs> There's some stuff I didn't even know you made, like this uh, red blend that says, please NAO? contact us yes. For, yes, yes. for availability. Uh, the Booth Bella Oaks Cabernet, which is a super cool uh, single vineyard, the Stagliano. So, all right. So if people want to get <laughs> Staglin wine in right. their mouth or yeah, in their cellar right to drink 20, 20 years from now, what are the best ways to get it directly from Staglin yes. and make sure it's what they want and really supporting all the cool things you guys do? Absolutely. So they can either go on the website and they can email us. That's number one. Or they can email me at amber at staglinfamily.com and I can always help uh, get that taken care of here. So and obviously we what we'd prefer if they went to your shop and bought it. Oh, oh well, oh. thank you. That's very kind. We appreciate that, too. And we can we can get the Salus anytime people need generally often, or we can get you on a list for when the next vintage is. Right. Um, one of the cool things you do in your role is you do a lot of dinners. And um, one of the things that Staglin does a great job is um, supporting restaurants, country clubs. You have a lot of really awesome events where your wines are featured on their own, sometimes with other great wines from Napa Valley or around the world, and then paired with amazing foods. And your wines are food-friendly, awesome if people are interested in these events that you guys are doing, is there, there a way they can know this or should just keep an eye out? Yeah. If you something um, from Staglin, we actually it. do on the website have a little page that um, I need to update. So thank you for that reminder. <laughs> We're here for you. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, so, uh, but that's a way that you can do it. And, or you can always just email the winery. Um, also social media. We do a lot of social media and that it will also um, be on social media as well. So, we do do a lot of private dinners, but like coming up, we do have some great um, dinners uh, focused in other areas that are public. So that's great. We love a good. We love a good event here. <laughs> we're big on themes and we're big on parties. <laughs> I like. I like. All, all. 
Well, this was amazing. Um, I, I hope everyone has can take away at least a handful of things from this. And thank you so much for spending all this time with us. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It's nice to finally be home and be able to do so. And I always have Wisconsin pride. So I, and I'm the Bucks won, which is a big Yes, exactly. Well, thanks again, Amber. Um, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, Amber. talk about Cabernet. Well, how happy are you? I mean, super happy because also we get to enjoy it while we're recording. So I thought Amber was so fun. Did you like the fact that she's from Wisconsin? That was the best part. She just has such a cool story. It was a really fun. It was just, it's interesting to me to always hear how people got to where they are. And her story was especially great. I think that's one of the things throughout the interview series that we'll hear too, is like Mm -hmm. people take some really interesting different paths to um, where they get in the wine world. It it just attracts all sorts of people. Yeah, I know. It made me think, should should I move to winemaking? I (laughs) mean, I like the Midwest. (laughs) Maybe the Guild of Sommeliers podcast has um, a series where they, obviously it's for professional sommeliers. Um, Not me. (laughs) I don't necessarily listen, recommend listening to their podcast unless you want to really nerd out. But they're doing a series of like, careers in wine that maybe aren't working on the floor of a restaurant. Weird that it came out as a pandemic wiped out all their jobs and they didn't respect those jobs <laughs> That's until smart marketing. Then. But anyway, um, you know, one of the things they talked about was like, there's a good market for label designers. Oh, I think know. about how many wine labels are crap. You know what? When I first started college, I remember being at orientation and there was a major for um, like packaging like, what is this crap? And now I'm like, oh, this is legit. Did you learn anything new about Cabernet or you just still love it as much as ever? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you have to listen. I hope you learn something new, but I'm always learning new things. This is my thing with wine. And I hope uh, the point of this podcast is there's, I don't feel like I've ever, I ever know everything I need to know. Do you? Uh, Nope. Always learning. Always more to learn. I love listening. I also love going to wineries and like there, some people are pretty blasé about like once you've seen a winery, you've seen it all. No, everybody does something a little uniquely. I think Amber talked about some of this um, sustainability they use and some of the, the way they handle the grapes. That's kind of a little unique to Staglin, and it's just to me very fulfilling when you could go and see that or talk to someone and hear what they mm-hmm. say and say, ah, that's a little bit different. And then relate that to something you taste in the wine. So I think that's really cool. The other thing that I love about Staglin is their commitment to charity. They are doing some cool things. They, um, again, as we record this, they just got wrapped up their um, music festival for brain health. They had One Republic playing. um, Like what? (laughs) And and it was incredible the amount of money they won. Um, They won. Or they they raised. (laughs) They raised. They won all this money. The the amount they've raised and and how they're dedicated to that is just is just crazy and so cool that uh, there's a lot of people that pocket that type of money um, and buy themselves Learjets and the Staglin (laughs) family, because it is the Staglin family running it. Um, gives so much of that to, to help others and, and brain health. Yeah, they, Amber talked about, she barely brushed on, um, but towards the end, you know, some of the amazing things they're doing. So you should check out everything they're doing on staglinfamily.com. It's where you can learn everything about the amazing wines, uh, the philanthropic efforts from the company, and so much more. The last thing I just wanted to touch on with Staglin is this is an incredibly expensive wine. I mean, this <laughs> is nobody's, we, t- we talked about this a little bit. Um, this will be the most expensive wine we talk about throughout the series. Um, but with that said, I think we talked about this too. Salus is a, a pretty, yeah. I don't want to say affordable, but in reach 
bottle of wine if you want to try a really, really good bottle of Napa Valley wine made by a family that benefits charity in a lot of ways. All those proceeds go to charity. So um, we're not going to talk about wines that are this expensive all the time, but I think sometimes to really get that high-level understanding, it's good to talk to people that do it at the best. And that does mean, especially in a place as small as Napa Valley as in demand, it's going to be expensive. But um, I don't think that should put you off or make you think, well, I only have to buy $200 bottles of Napa Valley right. Cabernet. There's there's plenty of producers doing things up and down the price points that and around the world that give you similar levels of things that Amber talked to, maybe just not quite to the same level. And, and Nick brushed over this, but it's important for you, the listener, to know that is not going to be every bottle of wine. So you will be able to, as this uh, season goes on, as the series goes on, you will be able to buy the bottles we're talking about and enjoy them while you're listening to it or after you're done listening to them, um, even if this isn't necessarily in your price point. And that teases something we got coming <laughs> up that we're very excited about. If you're listening to this on release, we're going to be doing a tasting event at one of our favorite restaurants, Simple Cafe in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, where we're based out of Easy Drive from Chicago, Milwaukee, Madison, wherever you're at. And it'll be October 29th, and you'll get to try all, all wine from yeah. a, all the wineries we interviewed. Um, maybe not necessarily the one we talked about, just to provide a little variety, but we'll um, we'll have wines from all of them. And this one will have Salus Cabernet Sauvignon, which is a delicious bottle, again, that'll go to help support the brain health organization that they have. And uh, we hope you can check out our website, and we'll have all the links to get tickets on there. Yeah, and you will also get to meet us. <laughs> meet us. That's the most exciting part. Uh, if you haven't. <laughs> I mean, maybe we'll call up Amber and be like, yo, Amber. <laughs> yo, you want to come back to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin? <laughs> so um, please check out, again, huge thank you yeah. to Amber for taking the time to come on. Thanks, Amber. She's got a busy schedule. She's all over the world, so we really appreciate her time. You can check out Staglin Family, um, their website, staglinfamily.com, Staglin Family on Facebook, Staglin Family Vineyard on Instagram. You can find everything that we're blabbering about right now in the show notes of every episode. We'll put links to everything. And we really encourage you, if you're interested in buying bottles of wine to try, um, buy it directly from Staglin if you can. That supports them. Buy it at Lake Geneva Country Meats. We don't have it on shelves, but we can <laughs> special order it for you. And if you use the links on our website, wine201podcast.com, we'll get a little support from that to... Uh, you know, thank us for the Keep effort to put this. this podcast out and bring yeah. you season two. So we'd really appreciate that as well. <laughs> you can find us on social media where we're going to put out all kinds of fun content at Wine 201 Podcast. So follow along. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Our next episode is going to be Cabernet Franc with Bruce Murray from Boundary Breaks in New York. And that one, Bruce is a little it's different good. than Amber <laughs> uh, on the entirely different coast. But it's a really awesome episode and an unexpected one, I think, for Cabernet New it York. Was. It was fun. So stay tuned.